I'm Talib Vizram, and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. We're diving back into more topical news this week by looking at the role art plays in social movements, how police violence and gun violence are related, and we'll hear a few pop culture recommendations that help celebrate Pride Month. This is your Fast Break. As protests and rallies continue to march across the country, artists have been joining in. Songs by LL Cool J and T-Pain evoke the recent killings by police, and a series of illustrations by Adrian Brandon called Stolen depict partially drawn faces of those killed by police to represent how old they were when they were killed. Fast Company senior writer Mark Wilson joins us today to discuss another piece of artwork displayed prominently in the nation's capital. For a little background, the artwork in question spans two blocks in Washington, D.C. that lead up to the White House. Here is D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. Uh, well, we've commissioned uh, the, the artwork. We re renamed the plaza, and I'm thankful to the council for uh, codifying uh, that renaming to Black, Black Lives Matter Plaza. Uh, we think it's going to uh, have a central place, not in just D.C. history, but in American history, and we should be proud of it. Thanks for coming back on the show, Mark. Thanks, Talib. Can you tell us how this all came about? Yeah, I mean, it was a direct order from Bowser, and it was done in a pretty last-minute clandestine way. So the mural was painted in the early hours of, of Friday morning, and you know the muralist I talked to didn't actually know what was going on until 8 p.m. the night before. The whole project was organized through DC's actual mural group. Many big cities have groups specifically to paint murals around the city, and, and DC has one as well. Hmm. So they organized a group of, I believe, about eight muralists uh, to come together. All of them met on a, like a, a Zoom call together to sort of organize it and figure things out. And that's where you know a few of them learned what they'd be painting, which was this giant Black Lives Matter. I, I think at least a few of them were pretty surprised that they were going to be doing something so big, bold, and sort of overt on you know the, the president's sort of front steps. Yeah. Did the painters even know what they were involved in? So they, they kind of agreed to the project before they knew what they were involved in. Then, then they learned. So it was 8 p.m. on a Thursday night. They sort of planned things out and they agreed to meet, I believe, at 3.30 a.m. on the following Friday morning to actually do the work. As Kiana Jones, an, an artist who was involved with it, put it to me, uh, she wasn't sure that they would get it finished. So they started at 3.30. They have three buckets of paint. They spend hours just tracing the first B in Black Lives Matter wow. uh, to get the proportions right. They painted the B and the L, and when they painted the L, they ran out of paint. <laughs> like, they were just totally out. And so it was 7 a.m., none of the stores were open yet. The Department of Public Works is supplying, you know, all the paint and everything. They come by with new paint, but the new paint's a different shade of yellow. And so they have to start painting all over again. Wow. Uh, they're worried, still worried they're going to run out of paint, so they start watering down the cans. It, it sounds like pretty much the entire time, you know, they were looking at their watches. They knew they were supposed to be done by midday, and they're like, this is not, not going to work at all. And then it's morning, and then people are showing up, right? Yeah, so, you know, this is done in a very public part of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And so, you know, they're painting, the sun's coming up. Onlookers start asking, you know, what's going on here? Oh, you know, what are you working on? They're, they aren't even sure if they can tell people what they're working on yet. Eventually, they start to. People get kind of excited about it. They ask to join in. The Department of Public Works 
says, okay, sure. They, they scare up a few more paintbrushes and things like that. And that's how the job gets done, really, because a lot of, you know, citizens were sort of excited about it and volunteered to, to help with the job. You know, local news is showing up to see what's going on. Then national news starts showing up. An air of excitement really sort of fills the space. And, you know, that's when the mayor comes in, has an official press conference, and everybody learned that this wasn't just a painting they were putting on the street, but that it was actually being renamed Black Lives Matter Plaza. And so that took even all the artists by complete surprise, and they realized that they'd just done this, you know, huge, huge thing. And since then, what has the response to the mural been like? You know, initially, everybody's really excited. And by initially, I mean the first hour uh, (laughs) as it spread across the internet. And then within a few hours, though, Black Lives Matter DC promptly denounced the project. They called it a performative distraction from real policy changes and a way to appease white liberals. You know, I think that was that was probably pretty surprising to the people involved with the project, who I, who I think were really excited about it at first. Yeah. But that sentiment really quickly spread across, I think, a lot of Twitter, where, you know, the idea was, if you support the mural, you don't really support the movement. Yeah. And, you know, the question became, is art performative or can it drive change? But even though uh, the Black Lives Matter movement criticized it, the idea took off and these murals started being duplicated across the U.S. You know, there's one in Seattle. Charlotte, Brooklyn, Los Angeles, Dallas, Denver. They're basically being painted all over. So it's really tough to know how many people are actually critical of the murals and how many people are actually, you know, really excited by them. Yeah. And like you mentioned, other cities have got on board, including New York City. And at least one town in Missouri covered up their mural, saying it was illegal to paint a roadway. So in light of the appreciation and the criticism, what does this say about the role of murals in our society? I mean, that's a big question, right? You know, if you if you look at the last hundred years of what murals have meant, and, and I talked to several historians to sort of answer this, you know, murals have been part of, I guess, leftist politics. You know, we saw them around the turn of the century uh, in Mexico, really, really brought to light by Diego Rivera. And he ends up painting, you know, some pretty extreme stuff. So can you talk about some of his paintings and how they sort of characterize the history of Mexico? He, he was actually commissioned to paint the Palace of Cortez. And that was a really significant place because it was actually built by Spanish conquistadors in 1543 after they took this land from the Aztec Empire. So the conquistadors build this big palace for themselves on sort of ancient Aztec ground, right? Yeah. You know, a few hundred years later, Diego Rivera is invited in to to paint something there. And what he paints is pretty much the horror of what Spain had done across Mexico. Mm-hmm. So he paints the whole story. You know, he, sh- he shows the conquistadors coming off the boats, you know, negotiating with locals and then sort of turning on them, conquering them, enslaving the indigenous population to work on plantations. The last frame of the mural ends with the Mexican Revolution as the leader Emiliano Zapata strides along with a white horse that he had taken symbolically from the conquistadors. It's an entire rethinking of Mexican history considered pretty radical for its era. Yeah, well, these murals are really telling a story. And then how did his work then inspire American artists? A big part of it was in the New Deal 1930s, you know, the government spending money uh, on all sorts of things and all sorts of civic improvements. But one of them is is murals. You know, they paid to have a lot of artists come in and paint public buildings. And so these New Deal murals were pre-approved by the government. They couldn't be political. 
the artists were really excited to have a paycheck, so they were also being, you know, fairly patriotic with their work. But it definitely built up just the sheer amount of murals across the U.S. After the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless others, artists began drawing on boarded-up storefronts, including some in Soho, New York. What are some other historical examples of murals being used to express discontent or dissent in communities here in the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. You know, part of that question, right, I think, is can murals drive real change or, or can they make a difference beyond looking pretty? And historians I talked to believed yes. In Chicago, there, there was a pretty big precedent uh, in Bronzeville. A muralist named William Walker talked to the owner of this local TV shop. And, you know, he asked if he could paint a mural for the Organization of Black American Culture. You know, what came out of that was what was called the Wall of Respect. And, you know, it was a wall that had portraits of black figures like Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and Harriet Tubman. If you were civil rights activists coming to Chicago in that time, you went there. You sort of paid homage to it. Protests started from there. It was, again, a meaningful space made from some paint. Eventually, the building caught fire in the early 1970s. The historian I talked to thought it could have been a purposeful fire, maybe, maybe not, but the city demolished the building along with the wall. And now that the large BLM mural is up, which can be seen from space, uh, it seems to have divided people. Uh, how might it stand out from its precedents? And what will its overall effect be like on communities? You know, I, I think the criticism, and there's a validity to the criticism, which is why everyone's talking about it, right? Is Does it represent a gentrification of the Black Lives Matter movement? Is it a symbol, right, more than it is uh, action? Is it a getting in the way of action? That's a tough criticism to answer. I talked to some experts about this and sort of civic spaces and things like that. And something that was pointed out to me was that D.C. is a city different than any other city, right? Because D.C. is our nation's capital, but it is superseded in power by the president who sits there. For D.C. to actually paint this means something that no other city painting this can mean, right? Because it's a direct sort of protest to the president who is right on the street. Sure. D.C.'s demography is really interesting, too. There's an ever so slight majority of Black and African-American people. You know, it's highly Democratic, but you really see sort of Democrats and Republicans really sort of elbow to elbow. And so in that regard, the mural seems significant because it is there in support of the black community. So is there any particular city that had a criticism that most stands out to you? Yes, the Black Lives Matter mural in Flint, Michigan. So this was a mural very similar to the one uh, that's in DC painted on the street. A super viral tweet went around about it that basically implied, look, these people don't even have clean water. They have this mural. And this is really the ultimate symbol on how pointless this is, right? How this is just this dumb performative thing getting in the way. You know, in that thread was this young woman named Aisha King, and she's just taking people on one-on-one, -on -one, arguing with them, no, you're wrong. And I ended up talking to her. Aisha is a Flint resident. She worked on the mural. She really explained, and the mural was done in conjunction with the local Black Lives Matter uh, chapter, actually, that it was community funded. It was an important symbol for her because it was a message to her city. It was a message to the nation. And so, you know, it just becomes a really tough thing to argue with. When someone from Flint paints this, they say it's meaningful to me. Yeah. I'm not sure anyone from any other city can come in and say, no, that's not, right? Um, you're appropriating Flint for the wrong reason. You know, I, I wish I had some sort of grander, cleaner conclusion about it. You know, no one I talked to really did, which is one reason I, I do think it's a fascinating debate. 
it's interesting to hear that some of the residents of Flint really appreciated it. And maybe it's uh, it's kind of the peer pressure on Twitter of, you know, if someone criticizes the mural, then everyone wants to jump on it and instantly it just becomes a bad thing. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And, you know, what I thought was was really compelling about that, about that tweet in particular was, you know, the person who shared that sentiment was an outsider and they were they were leveraging the symbol of Flint for their own argument. Mm. But when the citizens of Flint actually showed up to that thread who worked on the mural, it was an entirely different story. So Talib, I, I completely agree. I think that actually hearing their perspective changes the conversation entirely. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see how many more murals start popping up throughout the rest of the country. Yeah. I mean, a lot of cities have them, so I don't know how much <laughs> more room there is, but we'll see. Well, thanks so much for coming back on the show, Mark. Thanks, Talib. We'll be right back after this short break. Over three months ago, police officers shot and killed Breonna Taylor in her home in Louisville, Kentucky. The police defended their use of force by asserting that they only fired their guns in self-defense when Taylor's boyfriend shot at them. While Taylor's killing has played a large role in calling for police reform, police shootings are not an uncommon event in this country. In the last five years, police have consistently shot and killed about a thousand people every year. Chris Brown is the president of Brady United Against Gun Violence, a nonprofit that advocates for gun control and against gun violence. As a gun violence prevention organization, we have been kind of on the front lines of looking at this issue. We view gun violence as a public health issue. Brown says we need a more holistic thinking when it comes to solving police violence. It's going to take addressing systemic racism in our society in a meaningful way. It's going to take enhancing and strengthening the gun laws in this country that fuel a belief, no matter who you are, that someone walking down the street may very likely have a gun. Multiple studies have shown that a higher prevalence of guns owned by citizens leads to a higher local rate of shooting deaths by police. Officers know that they live in a state with looser gun laws, so they expect to encounter someone who has a gun. John Roman is a senior fellow at the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago, and he did a similar study in 2018 in collaboration with Vox. He found a positive correlation between the states that have higher gun ownership and more permissive gun laws and killings by police. He says implicit bias against black people increases the chance of a police encounter turning deadly. There's certainly overwhelming evidence that there are racial disparities in every police encounter with a black person. So it is reasonable then to conclude that there's a racial disparity in the likelihood that the police will fear you more when they interact with you and be more likely to shoot you. Amid the protests against police violence, there have been several calls to defund the police and divert that money into improving the safety of communities. But since police violence and gun violence go hand in hand, another solution is to decrease the prevalence of illegal guns. Here's Chris Brown again. Right now, we have what can only be characterized as grossly negligent oversight of how guns are sold and how laws are enforced in this country. A lot of guns are sold through private, federally unlicensed dealers at gun shows, which is legally allowed because of what's informally known as the gun show loophole. A policy called the TIART Amendment prevents the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms from creating a public database of the gun supply chain. 
and the ATF is the only agency allowed to trace guns. Along with defunding the police, many reformists are also calling for disarming the police. Unarmed police are the norm in some countries like Iceland, which also has relatively high gun ownership levels among citizens. Can that model work in the U.S.? I, I think the idea that an armed law enforcement officer needs to respond to every call for service is incredibly inefficient. There's no reason why you can't call 911 and say, my nephew is having a, a mental health crisis, mm. and they immediately send you a mental health counselor, right? It does not need to be an armed officer. So you could certainly reduce the number of armed police responding to incidents where a weapon it, it can only escalate. Changes to police departments are already being made. In Albuquerque, there have been at least 36 officer-involved shootings since 2015. Two weeks ago, Albuquerque's mayor made an announcement. Now, the city will send unarmed social workers and housing specialists to calls related to inebriation, homelessness, addiction, and mental health. Next, we'll hear from Fast Company staff writer Liz Seagrin on a few of her favorite things to watch, plant, and smell, all of which celebrate LGBTQ plus individuals. We are now months into this pandemic, and most of us are going a little stir-crazy being locked down at home. But here are a couple of things that have really spiced up my life over the last couple of weeks. Je devoir la peindre sans que le sache. Elle pense que vous êtes une compagne de promenade pour quelques jours. Que savez-vous de mon futur mariage Rien. C'est tout ce que j'en sais aussi. Quand allez-vous vous marier Je ne sais pas si je vais me marier. C'est parce que vous pouvez choisir que vous ne me comprenez pas. Je vous comprends. I fell in love with a new movie that is showing on Hulu right now called A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It tells the story of two women in 18th century France who fall in love. One is a painter and the other is the subject that she's painting. And even though the movie is slow and deliberative and meditative, it offers a brilliant insight into their intimacy and their relationship that was completely forbidden at the time. And it is shot off the coast of Brittany in France, which is a wonderful escape from the world that I'm in right now. Not to mention, the movie won a Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival last year. For all of you guys who are into gardening, you have to check out the work of Christopher Griffin who goes by Plant Queen on Instagram. I didn't see a lot of folks like me in the plant community who identified as black, who identified as queer, who identified as femme. And so I basically used Plant Queen as an opportunity to um, exist unapologetically. His entire approach to gardening is that plants make people happy. And you can see that on his Instagram feed. Everything that he does is full of life and exuberance and happiness. And to me, that is what plants really are all about. We're gonna give you a little tour of this space. I'm gonna introduce you to some of the green girls. And then we're just gonna share with you some tips on how you can green up your home. Are you ready, darlings? Let's get started. Uh. While a lot of gardening websites make 
growing plants feel like a lot of work. What I love about Christopher is that he just makes everything about growing plants fun. Everybody's in need of a little bit of self-care right now. And in addition to meditation, I've been really appreciating aromatherapy. So I stumbled across a cult brand called Boy Smells, which is founded by David and Matthew, a couple who started making candles in their kitchen in Los Angeles. Their entire goal was to break down the gender binary when it came to scents. And they believe that we should be able to appreciate any beautiful smell, no matter our gender identity. For Pride Month, they've launched an entirely new collection of candles that are beautiful and I've really been enjoying them. A portion of the proceeds from these candles goes to the Trevor Project, which helps young LGBTQ people. We're a few months into this and we don't know how much longer we're going to be here. So I think it's really important for us to be investing in self-care because taking care of ourselves is how we're gonna get through this. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Bizram. <laughs>